do not love the world or the things in the world. The world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it. Listen along. I don't think I have the, the verses up here. Follow along in your, in your Bible. I'm going to read these first six verses to you. This is John. Uh, as Pastor Marcus said last week, John was one of the sons of thunder, and the gospel had so penetrated his life that he's now uh, an apostle of love and is known more for that, and you can hear it in his words. Little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin, but if anyone does... We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He's the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this we know that we've come to know him, if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. What a profound few verses. There are some big words in here that I want to talk about, uh, but I want to begin by talking about how do we know that we are right with God? We talk about the gospel all the time here at Coastal. We constantly are reviewing the gospel message, and that it is that that makes us right with God. But there are a couple of words in here that help us to understand our relationship with God, and actually one of them affects both our salvation and our ongoing walk with God. So, so as Pastor Marcus said last week, he, he talked about that section that said we ought to be walking in the light. And there's, there's this sense of, man, if, if, if we want to demonstrate that we're having fellowship with God, we need to walk in the light. It was a really great message. You've got to go back and listen to it if you missed it. But he moves on to say, little children, I'm writing these things so you may not sin. Now, I don't want to skip that line. Because I think, at least my tendency, I don't know about yours, my tendency is to zip past that to the next part. But if we do sin, we have an advocate. We're going to get there. But I want us to remember that John is writing so that we will not sin. Now, how in the world is that an encouragement? Here's how that's an encouragement. The scriptures say sin does not have dominion over us. So that thing that you're struggling with, that besetting sin, some people call it, that, that thing that just keeps coming around and you keep knocking it down and you keep fighting with it, keep doing that. John is writing to us so that we might not sin. Now listen, we don't teach sinless perfection at Coastal. I don't believe that you're going to get to a point where you're going to look around and think, dude, I got it all together. I am perfect. That's not going to happen. We get that. He's going to address that. But let's not let that 
make us put our guard down and think, well, I'm going to sin anyway, so why try, right? That's not what it is. I'm writing this to you, he says, so that you may not sin. Jesus has given us not only freedom from the penalty of sin, but freedom from the power of sin. We don't have to sin. Victory belongs to us. We can't ignore that reality. In fact, let me, let me, so the first point is Jesus is our advocate, but I'm kind of doing that first line. Look at these verses from Romans chapter 6, verses 12 through 14. I think I have them up there. Yep. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who've been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. The principle of defeating sin in our lives has a lot to do with who am I offering myself to? Am I offering myself to God to use my, my body, my mind, my spirit, my thinking processes? All, am, I, am I offering myself to God so that he can use me for his glory for the sake of righteousness? Or am I offering myself to sin? Am I willing to put myself back under the domination of sin? I don't have to do that. That's a really important truth in the Christian life. It's not his main point, though, so I didn't want us to miss it, but I want to get to the Jesus is my advocate, because he says, I'm writing so that you may not sin, but if anyone does, I know most everybody's thinking, oh, phew, I'm glad he finally got there. If anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. John is doing what? Emphasizing the source of our common help, not talking about our common crisis. Yes, we sin. Yes, we struggle. The goal is not to, but if we do, here's our common source of help. Jesus comes alongside us to stand on our behalf comes alongside. It's a similar word to the word for the Holy Spirit that is given elsewhere in the New Testament, the comforter. Jesus said, I'll send you another comforter, another one to come alongside of you. That's what Jesus does. Some years ago, when our Mitch turned 21, uh, we had to go through a process legally to become his guardians. Uh, he is not able to care for his decisions that have to be made and things like that, and we make those for him. But once he became a legal adult, we had to go to court to make sure that we continued to have that right. And that, so we have now not just the moral authority as his parents, but the legal authority as his guardians to make decisions for him. It was a very weird process for me. I really actually hated it because he actually got assigned a lawyer by the court who came to our home and sat and 
met with Mitchell and hung out in his room to check out what things were like there and check out the home environment and all of that. The entire goal of that lawyer was to come alongside him and make sure he was being well cared for by these people who were saying we want to be his guardians for as long as we are all alive. It was a very weird experience, but it reminds me of this. That guy came and came alongside and even sat next to Mitchell in the courtroom to ensure that he was rightly cared for. He became, there you go. I think he remembers maybe. He was his advocate, Jesus stands up for us. He is our advocate. And an advocate argues our case. He wants to try, in, in our expression of it, our understanding of it, the advocate tries to argue against the plaintiff. They want to make sure that we discredit the plaintiff or, or we make sure that there's not sufficient grounds for the charges against us or whatever. And is that what Jesus does? Oh, no. There are sufficient grounds against us for the charges against us, right? We're not innocent of the charges. Jesus doesn't have much good to say about us, but he has a whole lot of good to say on behalf of us because we have an advocate who is, according to the verse, right? Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Jesus' advocacy for us is not based on trying to get us the best deal he can get in court. Jesus' advocacy is based on what he has done to secure our place. And he's not advocating before God as if God is still wanting to judge us and pound us down and knock us down a few notches. He is advocating because there is an accuser who has come. Satan, who is the accuser of the brethren, who's saying, but look at this person. Remember what he, he did it with Job, right? It was really plain and poignant in Job. You read the early parts, Satan came before God, and God said, have you considered my servant Job? He is a man of integrity, and he honors me, and he lives for me. And Satan said, well, of course, you've made his life great. Take away his stuff, he'll curse you to your face. And so God gave Satan the authority to do that and he wiped out pretty much everything that Job had except his wife took his children took his possessions took everything and the immediate response of Job in the context of that story was to worship God and say the Lord gave the Lord has taken away blessed be the name of the Lord so Satan came back to God and God said have you considered my servant Job he said, well, yeah, but as weird as it seems, all I did was destroy his life. You know, I didn't, I didn't do anything to him personally. God said, okay, just don't kill him. You know, the, the thing about what kills you, what doesn't kill you only makes you stronger. Job experienced that, right? Satan took everything from Job, his health. He was miserable. But he worshiped God. He was a man of integrity. The accuser had come to God. Now the accuser comes to God saying about me, 
Look at him. Look at his attitude. Look at what he does. Look how imperfect he is after all these years of saying he follows you. After all those sermons and all of those Bible studies and all of those sessions talking to people about how to live for God, look how he still is in his thinking. Look what a mess he is. And Jesus steps up and says, it's not about Wilson. It's about what I did because I'm the righteous one. And God looks at me through Jesus and sees me as perfectly righteous. Jesus is my advocate. That's incredible, right? Ah, there we go. Okay. It's an amazing thing. The Father, by raising Jesus from the dead and setting him at his own right hand, where he intercedes for us, has once and for all accepted Christ's claim for us. Therefore, the accuser's charges against God's children are in vain. They're empty. They fall flat. They don't matter. He is our advocate. That's one of the ways we know we're right with God. The second way is Jesus is our propitiation. Verse 2, he is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. This word propitiation is very powerful. And it actually comes from the Old Testament. There was an event, and it still, still happens every year in the Jewish calendar, called Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. Generally speaking, somewhere in, in the fall in our calendar, usually in sometime in September. But if you go to Leviticus 16, I'm not going to take the time to go back there. There was this very fascinating process because there was a whole sacrificial system in the Old Testament. But one day a year was called the Day of Atonement. And it was the day during the year when the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies, the holiest place in the tabernacle, and would atone for the sins of the people. And he did that with several animals. One was a bull that was sacrificed to pay for sin. And in fact, it was to cover the sin of the priest because the priest couldn't go before God on behalf of the people because he was sinful. So they sacrificed a bull, cared for the priests, covered over the priests' sins, and then they had two goats. One they killed so that its blood could be shed, and it was sprinkled on the altar. It was sprinkled on the mercy seat. When the translators of the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, when they translated the word from Hebrew that means mercy seat into Greek, they used this word, propitiation, satisfaction. It satisfied God's wrath. Now listen, we don't like that, right? We don't like to talk about God's wrath. We are really glad to talk about his love and his kindness and his mercy and his gentleness and all of those things, all of which are true. What we don't like to talk about is his holiness and his wrath 
against sin. We live in a culture that argues, if God is all-loving and all-powerful, how can there be evil in the world? My first response when someone says that to me is, why have you only picked those two characteristics of God? Have you thought about the fact that God is also completely, perfectly holy? Has a complete, perfectly holy hatred of sin? Do you understand who you're talking about when you make these accusations? God needs to have his wrath appeased. Jesus is that satisfaction, that appeasement, that propitiation. So back to the story from Leviticus 16. They took these two goats, and one of them they killed, and they sprinkled the blood. Its blood was shed. The other one they took, and the high priest laid his hands on this goat and confessed the sins of the nation over this goat, which was then led out into the wilderness, symbolically carrying the sins of the people. He was called the scapegoat. He was the one who was sent. It wasn't his sins, but he was sent away to carry the sins of the people. So then the New Testament writers picked that up. And we understand from our vantage point that Jesus carried our sins to the cross. And his blood was shed and spilt to pay the penalty for our sins. He became our scapegoat. He became the one whose blood paid the penalty for our sin and satisfied the wrath of God. It's a profound truth. The whole sacrificial system covered over the sins of the people. Jesus came according to the book of Hebrews, and died once for all. He didn't have to die again. There didn't have to be a sacrifice made for him first. He is now our great high priest who intercedes for us, is our advocate, because he is the righteous one who already satisfied the wrath of God. Listen, if I were Marcus, I would be just about on my tiptoes right now because he's way more passionate a preacher than me but are we thinking about this this is incredible stuff this is how we know we're right with God these truths about Jesus and what he accomplished are so vitally important but one more thing to think about those goats they were dragged over there by a rope and somebody took a knife and did in one of them, and the other one was led out into the wilderness and let go, and presumably either starved to death or some other creature got him. But they were victims. Jesus was no victim. He did this willingly. John chapter 10 talks about it. Jesus said this, I lay my life down for the sheep. No one takes it from me. I lay it down of my own accord. 
This didn't just happen to Jesus. Jesus gave himself up for our sins. He was the satisfaction before God for our sins. So when people say, well, I mean, I'm saved, so I'm good, and then they continue sinning. See, John's going to address that, but he, he's going to address it based on what we've just talked about. <coughs> Excuse me. Jesus voluntarily took upon himself the satisfaction of the wrath of God. He stands before God when Satan seeks to accuse and says, I've already paid for that one. That's how we know we're right with God. Does that make us want to do our own thing? Does that make us feel so free? We're just like, oh, then it doesn't matter what I do because I'm good, right? No, of course not. Understanding the, the depth of what Jesus accomplished never makes us lackadaisical in our walk with God. It makes us seek to honor him in every way possible. That's how we know we're right with God. So how do we know we're right with Jesus then? Those last few verses talk about that. And he, the reason I say that is, this is how we know. By this we know. Two times that phrase is repeated, verses 3 and verses 5. This is how we know that we know him. Verse 3 if we keep his commandments. We know we're right with Jesus if, first of all, we keep his commandments. Now again, does that mean if you ever miss one, if you ever falter, oh, then you don't really know Jesus? We've already talked about that. This is talking about our lifestyle. This is talking about our trajectory. This is talking about how we pattern our behavior. We know that we know Jesus if the pattern of our life reflects a gratitude for what he has done and we are seeking to keep his commandments. What are his commandments? He summarized them in two, right? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. That summarizes the entire law according to Jesus. This word for knowing is very relational. There are two words in the New Testament that are used for knowing. One of them is, I collect information and I come to a conclusion. This is not that word. This word for knowing is the word that has to do with relationships, with knowing someone intimately, personally. This is how we can be confident that we have a relationship with Jesus if we keep his commandments. We're not just knowing about him, we know him. Jesus himself had said, if you love me, keep my commandments, John chapter 14. If we have a pattern of behavior that keeps the word of God, then we indicate that God's love has become perfected in us. So we know we know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, well, I know him, but doesn't keep his commandments is a liar. Whoever says, well, of course, I know Jesus, but their lifestyle doesn't indicate that that's true. They're not telling the truth. Now, they may not be lying just to you. They may be lying to themselves. They may think, oh, well, I grew up in the church. 
Well, I, I, I go to church regularly. Well, I do this, and I think this, and I'm good to people, and I, I give to the poor, and I do all these good things, and therefore I know Jesus. And I, what they mean is, I know that the Bible talks about a man named Jesus who lived a long time ago, but they are not in a relationship with Jesus. So they are lying to themselves. If they're living a life that is consistently patterned toward the things of the world, they don't know Jesus. But whoever keeps his word, verse 5 says, in him truly the love of God is perfected. So if I am in the scriptures and the scriptures are informing my lifestyle and I'm growing in my walk with Christ and things are increasing and improving, there is a pattern of behavior that indicates, yeah, this guy is really doing his best to follow after God, then I can know that God's love has come to completion in me. It's come to fruit. We know that we're rightly related to Jesus. We know we're right with him if we keep his commandments. And secondly, if we live like he lived. Verse 6, whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Whoever says, I'm abiding in Jesus, this is terminology that was taken from John 15. Abide in me, Jesus said, as the branch abides in the vine, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so you cannot bear fruit unless you abide in me. If we say we're resting in him, if we say we're resting in Christ's finished work, we ought to live like he lived. Well, what is that like? So this is not focusing now on what we shouldn't do. This is focusing on what we should do in caring for the people around us, in being people who are quick to forgive, in being, being people who are compassionate to those who are in need, in, in being people who take on responsibility for themselves and for those around them in being people who are sacrificial in their attitude toward other people. That's how Jesus lived, right? He was well known for those things. There's one last progression in this text that I want to I want to point out. One is that we know him. Verse 3, by this we know that we've come to know him. I think that is the relationship piece. I already talked about that. That's, that's having a relationship with Jesus. We know him. Secondly, we are in him. That's being connected, what John 15 calls bearing fruit. When the fruit of the Spirit begins to become evident, we know we are in Christ. And then there is abiding in him at the end of this passage. I think that's constancy. I think that's resting in Christ. Those things all develop an increasing passion 
for God, an increasing passion for the things of God, an increasing desire to want to honor God with my life. It is not about what I don't do. It's about how much am I living like Jesus. It is not, Christianity is not a list of all the things you're not allowed to do. Christianity is a complete change of orientation. The things that were important to me no longer are. There is a different set of things that are now important to me. Because on those occasions when I, when I trip and I stumble and I fall back into old patterns briefly, I have an advocate who stands up for me. The very same one who died to carry and wash away my sins so that I don't have to be penalized for that. And so I get back out of the trash heap and I start to walk again. Not because, oh, I did it again, I'm so awful, I'm so, but because Jesus stands for me and I am in him and I want to abide in him. It changes my whole perspective. So the question always is, maybe if you're watching online or here and visiting with us or maybe here long term and have never yet actually dealt with your relationship with God through Jesus, I want to know, do you have a relationship with God through Christ? It's desperately important. This will never become real to you. This will never become more than a text to study if you don't have a relationship with God through Jesus. You have to have that. And it happens by turning from the things that dishonor God, by believing in the gospel that Jesus actually came, lived all the way I just described, died on the cross, paying the penalty for your sin, carrying it with him to the cross, died, was put in that tomb, and came back literally to life on the third day. I turn from my sin, I believe in the gospel, and I receive Jesus. It is my only hope to be rightly related to God. I need an advocate. I need someone to satisfy God's wrath against me. Jonathan Edwards, a preacher from uh, many, many years ago, preached a sermon entitled, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. It wouldn't go over so well in our culture, but it went over in that one. He described us as spiders on a spider's web dangling over the fires of hell. And it is said that it was so powerful in its impact that people gripped the pews in front of them and left marks with their fingers. They were so gripped by the wrath of God against their sin. But as someone who is in Christ, I do not need to fear God. I don't need to fear his wrath. He sees me perfectly righteous in Jesus. So do you have a relationship with God through Jesus? Man, I hope you do. If not, grab me afterwards. I'd love to talk to you. Talk to one of the people that will be down here after the service. Let us have the opportunity to show you how to get this underway. Trust in Jesus. Secondly, what does the pattern of your life prove? If the pattern of your life is one that displeases God, if that's kind of your general pattern, 
then according to what the scriptures say, you are not rightly related to God because that's not how Christians function. Thirdly, what will you do about it? Let's say that you realize, you know what, the pattern of my life is not pleasing to God. There are things in my life that I habitually am involved in, and I know it's wrong, and I'm doing it anyway. Then I go back to point one. I make my relationship right with God through Jesus. I come and repent of my sin and trust and believe in the gospel and receive Christ. And I begin the process of forsaking my sin and following after Jesus. It is at one and the same time simple to understand and very difficult to implement, right? No one is suggesting this is easy. I've had people say, well, you make it sound so simple. Well, it is simple. I mean, it's not difficult to understand, but it is very difficult to employ. I totally get that. That's why we're here for each other. That's why God hasn't left us alone. That's why God has given us one another to help us walk this life together. Like I said, there are some very challenging things in this passage of Scripture. I, uh, I'm going to have a word of prayer here in just a minute, and uh, our team's going to come back up and lead us as we close, but uh, I want to encourage you, do some business with God today. This ought to produce gratitude. These kind of sermons sometimes, I think, produce in people a a shame and a struggle and a, I just don't measure up. Listen, that's the beauty of the gospel. None of us does. But in Jesus, we are 100% seen as righteous in the sight of God because the, the righteousness of Christ is applied to our account when we trust in Jesus. So let's pray. Father, I'm so thankful for sections of scripture like this. They seem a little a little heady to me. Uh, it's been my goal and desire not to make it academic, but to make it uh, understandable and practical and to increase our gratitude. Lord, we love you. We are so grateful for the kindness you have shown us in Christ, for the opportunity that is ours to walk with you Oh, God, I thank you for that, and I pray. I pray for the one that might be here today yet that has never trusted in Jesus, that they would have the courage to come and make that right so that we can together walk toward what you have in our future. Lord, I, I'm just grateful. I'm thankful today. I'm thankful for what you've accomplished. I thank you for the Lord Jesus who willingly gave himself to satisfy your wrath and to bring about a, such an incredible opportunity for us to be rightly related to you. So Lord, uh, take the offering of ourselves to you today uh, and use us as you will. For I ask in Jesus' name.